Hey, welcome back to another week of the podcast. Today's episode is one of my favorite episodes. And it was so wonderful when I recorded this episode, but I actually had COVID when we recorded this episode. And so I kind of remember, like, I just feel like I didn't get to thoroughly enjoy it as much as I did when I and when I was editing it because when I was editing it I was like remembering having this conversation and it is so good. So a little bit of a trigger warning for this episode. We're talking about birth trauma. We are talking about a NICU stay and we are also talking about mental health. So I have on the podcast today Courtney and Stephen Smith from the Knock on Parenthood podcast. And this episode, we're talking about their experience becoming parents, which was pretty traumatic and not at all what they were expecting. So in this episode, Courtney breaks down her uh, experience with preeclampsia. She was diagnosed uh fairly early in her pregnancy with preeclampsia and she talks us through exactly what preeclampsia is, what it did to her body, what it could potentially do to others. And uh, it's actually really serious and something that she felt like wasn't talked about enough. And I also agree. I mean, it's something that, you know, we know about maybe even just some people know about it, but like when you go to the doctor's office and your urine is tested, they're testing for proteins. But I remember asking about that. I don't know. I don't have any memory of my OB actually like telling me what it was that she was doing. I remember at the beginning thinking like, is she just checking to make sure I'm still pregnant? Like why is she wanting to check my urine each and every time? So I do think it's something that's not nearly talked about enough. And I think a lot of people think like, preeclampsia is just high blood pressure and that it's not a big deal. And, you know, we're being watched for this all the time, but it actually can be a really scary and really big deal. So Courtney is raising so much awareness to this particular topic. So we talk about her birth experience and how her whole experience really caused a lot of PTSD a lot of birth trauma issues. Um, Her daughter was in the NICU for 15 days after she gave birth. And she's really vulnerable and really raw and talks about, you know, those first moments that she didn't get to have with her daughter and that those first moments were with strangers and nurses and like the NICU staff. So, Honestly, when I was editing this, it brought tears to my eyes and Courtney's husband, Stephen, is like amazing and he gives his perspective on it and he talks about how this whole situation, it greatly affected him and his own mental health. And I think this conversation is even a whole separate conversation, but it's completely important. I think that we get so focused in on mom and baby during these horrific times, which I mean, obviously the mom's been through the birth and the trauma of the birth, the babies in the NICU, like those are obvious things. But I think we forget about the caretakers. We forget about the spouses that then become the caretakers. We forget about that mental load that I can put on our partners. And Stephen talks about that. And, 
you know, he's also very raw and vulnerable and just so honest about this experience that I honestly can't wait to share this with you. So without further ado, let's welcome Stephen and Courtney to the Honest as a Mother podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Honest as a Mother podcast. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Courtney and Stephen Smith. And you may listen to their podcast called Knock on Motherhood Podcast. No, Parenthood, right? Yes, yes, yes. Parenthood. Parenthood. As I'm saying motherhood, I'm like, no, that's your Instagram. It's Parenthood, Knock on Parenthood Podcast. Um, so welcome, guys, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you guys here. Thanks for having mm-hmm. us. Yeah, and um, we, do, we do run the Knock on Motherhood blog. So that's where that ends in. <laughs> That's what it, I'm like. You guys are screwing me up here. There is a knock on motherhood for sure somewhere in this brand. I know it. Onward. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, um, I asked them to come on the podcast because Courtney has this incredible Instagram platform where she talks a lot about her story and she ha- was diagnosed with preeclampsia in her pregnancy. And we were just kind of talking a little bit earlier off the podcast, how I feel like, and now I know she feels like this is something that's kind of glazed over a little bit. Like preeclampsia is not a serious pregnancy health concern. And for some women, I guess maybe it could be. Um, But then there are stories like Courtney's, I think that happen more often than we realize. And I just wanted to bring some awareness to it and hear about your journey. So can you guys just give yourself a little introduction and then we'll just dive right in. Yeah. Um, so I'm Courtney. I run the blog, Knock on Motherhood, and also the Instagram account. And then a year or so after doing that, we launched our podcast, Knock on Parented, and named it Parented because it was both of us. Yeah. Doing it. We wanted a, a group effort, you know, not just one of us. Because, you know, it's not just mothers that are on the parenting journey. It's parents too. Dads are important. Mm-hmm. And most of what we talk about is involving our story of how I had preeclampsia during my pregnancy. We had a NICU stay and a premature birth. So just everything kind of encompassing that and how that affects the way you parent going forward. Um, so I don't know where you want me to start. Let's just start. Let's start in your pregnancy. So what did, like, what were some red flags for you? I I'm just also like curious for myself. I had high blood pressure in both of my pregnancies, but it came so far at the end of my pregnancy that it was like a worrisome, but then I was not pregnant anymore. So it was kind of something off my plate fairly quickly. Um, So where did your health issues start? What did it look like? Let's like kind of paint that picture. Yeah. Um, so I had a perfectly healthy pregnancy, like to begin with, um, mm-hmm. we did have some losses before that pregnancy when they were just chemical pregnancies. I say just as like, it's not a big deal. It is, but of course, you know, it's an early pregnancy loss. So you don't have, I guess, proof of it, like, you know, like an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, it's totally normal. I had morning sickness up until like 20 weeks. I never threw up. It was just nauseous. Yeah, it was perfectly normal. Nothing ever showed it. And then about 31-ish weeks, I got my doctor just kind of was like, I'm kind of concerned your blood pressure is going higher every time you come and see us. So I'm going to prescribe you a blood pressure cuff. Just take it at home. 
If you ever get a number of 140 over 90, immediately come into the office if it's open or go to L&D if it's after hours. And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and your blood pressure was right on the verge of that basically every single time you took it. But we were a little hesitant to go in because right. we, we didn't want to go in and just be sent back out. And they didn't tell me exactly why 140 or 90 was like a big deal, like the big red flag number. So if people don't know, 140 or 90 is kind of where your blood pressure is at, that's the sign of preeclampsia, where you're into that hypertension and then go up very fast and everything like that. So, but no one explained that to me. I was just more just annoyed. That's another thing I had to do. Um, it took a while before I was able to get a blood pressure cuff. So then I had to drive over to the pharmacy, um, take my blood pressure there and then drive to work. And when I got off of work, before I head home, I had to go to the pharmacy and then head home. But once I got it at home, it's fine. I just kept a log. And then when I was about 32-ish weeks pregnant, I hit that number right before I went into work with my one at home. So I kind of calmed down. I'm like, maybe it was just, you know, whatever. Took it again. I hit it again. So then I called Steven. And at the time, he was working at a smoothie shop because we were still in college. Call him up. And I was like, oh, by the way, like, my blood pressure is high. I'm just heading into the office right now. Yeah, I get that call and I'm like, okay, well, I'm here at work. <laughs> I don't have a car. And so I just keep working and then wait for another, you know, call or text. And I got it. And she called and said, the doctor's putting me, rushing me to the hospital, like right now. He wants me to go right now. And so I get in the car. I, oh, I don't have a car. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> literally I walk slash jog to the um, clinic so I can meet Courtney there before we go to the hospital and because my blood pressure was so high they wouldn't let me drive myself to the hospital even though I was just around the corner it was like a minute drive but they wouldn't let me drive so I had to wait for him to show up Oh my God. So yeah, I mean, it's not something that you want to have happen to anybody, but it does happen and mm -hmm. it can take control of your life and put you in a situation where you don't want to be in. And for us, that was not where we wanted to be. We didn't want to have to go to the hospital early and to um, have a three night stay for the first time at the hospital and even though it was only supposed to be 24 hour um, protein urine check, we uh, ended up staying there for three days. And Courtney got her steroid shots in for uh, the baby's lungs so that they could develop faster and be prepared, even if she had to deliver early. Yeah. So, like what Stephen said, it was only supposed to be a 24 hour urine test. <clears throat> it's where they collected my urine for 24 hours to see exactly how much protein was in it. Right. Filling protein, that's another sign of preeclampsia because that means your kidneys are starting to fail and they're being damaged. Um, so what would happen is I was still all hooked up to all the monitors, you know, that you get when you're in the hospital, right? The heart rate, the contraction. So the nurses taught Stephen how to unplug the monitors so he can help me go to the bathroom because we were on the L&D floor. So if someone was having a baby, they couldn't be there to help me, right? They had to go help deliver the baby. So what they had is they had this kind of, it looks like an upside down hat 
plastic hat into the toilet seat. So instead of like the urine going directly into the water, it just collected into this hat. So then when the hat got too full, it had to be poured into a bigger jug. So true love is pouring your spouse's pee into 100%. a bigger jug. I have mentioned that a couple of times to my husband. Like one way I knew we would make it is like after I had a child, right? And or even just like the pee thing. Like, yes, you know what? You guys are you're a trooper, Stephen, and you're a keeper, and we're gonna keep your end. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just are put into a situation where you're their only support system at the, I mean available so you have to do whatever you have to do to help them mm-hmm. absolutely yeah, so <clears throat> once the 24 hours like was up I just kept telling myself okay I get to go home I get to go home I can shower and then I can like process everything because I was just kind of thrown to this I wasn't expecting to go into the hospital that day or anything so I just kept putting it off and was like I'm not going to think about it I'm not going to process it until I get home then I can get home and I can snuggle up to Steven and I can just cry then you know just gonna put it off so then the nurse came in after 24 hours and I'm like oh am I am I going to leave soon and she's like no the doctor wants you here longer and then I completely I completely lost it like I was full on just crying. I was just hysterical. And I remember Steve being like, she just thought she'd be home by now. <laughs> like mm-hmm. trying to explain to the nurse why I was so hysterical. And then I just waited around. Um, and then my parents, they lived, I think about four hours away then. And, you know, I called them up after that, like, oh, they're gonna make me hear you here longer. And then I just went back to bed and didn't think about it. And then around midnight, I woke up and my mom and my sister were there. They drove up in the middle of the night to come and see me and support me. Um, and then my mom just kept telling Stephen, you know, I'm here. How about you go home and go shower? But he's like, no, 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 I can't leave. I'm not going to leave. So that really won my mom completely over then. Like my mom already liked Stephen, you know, and everything. But I knew that was the moment she was like, okay, <laughs> you're good. So... Yeah, so it ended up being three days, um, and then when they released me on the third day, they released me on strict bed rest. Okay. And that's when they told me, you have preeclampsia. I hadn't heard about it then. I had no idea what the heck it was. I never heard of it before, mm-hmm. and then they just released me and basically be like, we're going to schedule you for a C-section at, or not a C-section, to be induced at 37 weeks, but it's just me taken day by day. Hopefully, you make it until then. Okay. So for anyone who's listening that maybe doesn't know exactly what preeclampsia is, would you be able to kind of like define it or like give it like a simplified version of what exactly is happening in your body or what potentially can happen? Like, why is it dangerous? Yeah. Um, So preeclampsia is persistent high blood pressure that develops in the pregnancy or postpartum period. And most of the time it's new high blood pressure. So like people who have um, consistent high blood pressure, it's more of like considered, you know, chronic high blood pressure because before preeclampsia happens, you can have just gestational high blood pressure where it just happens when you're pregnant. Um, So it kind of hits it over the edge into preeclampsia instead of just gestational hypertension is you have a lot of protein in your urine. You actually pee less, um, there's fluid in your lungs um, and things like that. Or there's signs of brain trouble where women can get seizures and seizures steps it into the eclampsia 
So preeclampsia before seizures. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'd probably say, I mean, as just an observer, as a husband to a mother that's going through this, it sort of feels like it's a cascade effect that um, catalysts your body into a shutdown mode that makes okay. you have liver damage or anything like that that can last longer with uh, eclampsia and it's just pretty terrible yeah. yeah so a big sign too is swelling so like you have the normal pregnancy swelling but then you have much more severe swelling and that can be a sign of preeclampsia as well but for the most part like typically the high blood pressure is kind of what shows up first or the protein in the urine um, but what kind of makes it tricky is sometimes you can have it without the high blood pressure. Yeah. So, but typically it comes with the high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then hence why that's taken every, um, OB appointment or midwife appointment. And then generally they also check your urine. Yeah. 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 That's why they do. That's why they check your urine, your blood pressure, every single appointment, even if you have nothing, because it can show up. So yeah. there are risk factors, right? Like if you're obese, your mom had preeclampsia or high blood pressure, your grandma had it. Um, you have different clotting disorders or autoimmune, like things like that. For my case, I didn't have anything. The only thing was, is my first pregnancy, which is considered a risk factor. Okay. Because my grandma that. and my mom, they never had any sort of high blood pressure issues. So I was the first in the family. Interesting. And you never had high blood pressure or anything like that? Like I, yeah, I never yeah. had anything pre-pregnancy. So it was yeah. just a crappy deck of cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you do your hospital stay. And then, so did you make it to 37 weeks? Like we need to know, like what... Did you make it there? Did, did we have a C-section? Like, you know, tell us, uh, we need the end result here. Yeah. Um, I definitely did not make it to 37 weeks. Okay. (laughs) What, what did you make it to? I made it to 35 weeks and three days. Okay. So, so close, but no cigar. Yeah. By the time I got released from the hospital, I had about a week and a half. Give or take. Um, but those week and a half, I went to the doctor's office almost every single day because either I had an ultrasound or an NST, which is a non-stress test, um, or my blood pressure spiked. So then they had to give me more medication to try and just keep it down. They were trying to keep me as pregnant as possible, like as long right. as Because you want the baby to develop as much as they possibly can. I mean, there's a big difference between the amount of brain activity that a 30 weaker has compared to a 35 weaker and vice versa uh, also like with 35 weaker to a 40 weaker full term mm-hmm. yeah Absolutely. so what had happened is it was memorial day weekend i had an appointment at the hospital because my clinic was closed because of memorial day i just had an ultrasound and i had an nst and during the nst they were picking up on contractions and you kept telling me like do you feel these it's like no what are you talking about it just feels like she's just moving around like moving around my belly because she was a very she's very active she constantly was poking and everything like that because my placenta was also towards my back okay so i could feel everything she was doing and so your body is over here lying to you, making you feel like <laughs> you have 
uh, baby kicking, but it's actually contractions and you wouldn't know the difference otherwise. Yeah, I didn't know the wow. difference. Um, and so I was there for a while. I was there for a long time because contractions really concerned them. But the fact I wasn't feeling them or anything, they were like, okay, you know, I was at 35 weeks. We were there for like six hours and we only expected to be there for about one hour. Yeah, because then they also gave me an ultrasound. And then at the ultrasound, I had a biophysical ultrasound, which is kind of more of an intense one where they watch to see if the baby's doing breathing motions. They measure and check everything, see if all 10 fingers and toes, all the heart, like everything, just make sure baby's good. Fluid flow through your blood to the baby or and. I had one of those. That was like the most interesting ultrasound. Yeah. Ever. It was cool. But it's cool. (laughs) Yes. And I remember like the ultrasound tech like making me get into like all these like funky positions because she was trying to like um I think if I remember correctly, it was like the blood flow um from the umbilical cord like she wanted to be able to see anyways I just remember that being yeah, very I mean, very cool yeah. ultrasound I don't know you can't see what I'm doing but my my head was towards the floor and my feet were up like I was yeah <laughs> I totally had to do that too and I remember thinking like I'm sorry you want me to do what like I am not going to get back up <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 that's funny anyway sorry side note but you just really brought me back there <laughs> it's it's sort of funny like it's like your baby's in there and your baby's like the paparazzi and she's has her hand to them and <laughs> doesn't want the yeah. people to see you through the <laughs> it's true so then they make mom like flip over on her back and like get on all fours so they can get the picture and then the baby still is like no no <laughs> head down hat hat over the face exactly exactly uh- I don't remember. Is that when they started talking about the umbilical cord? Did they knew that yeah, I had a small were, one then? Yeah, they were checking that out. So I had a really small umbilical cord. Um, it was like half the size of my pinky when she was. Oh born. wow! It was really wow. small. Um, and they didn't. I they didn't know that until then, basically. Right. Um, but they didn't really tell me any of that then. I don't remember it then. Yeah, it's sort of like after the fact, you remember all these things that they told you and you don't remember when they told you or anything. Um, but they told us that the umbilical cord had like half the flow of blood and nutrients that it should have had. Okay. But I don't remember that, which is a good thing. I probably don't remember that it mm-hmm. happened because I probably would have freaked out. So then we finally yeah. got home. Um, had my doctor on the phone. He's basically be like, you know, if you feel any worse, like you start puking or anything like that, you know, go back to the hospital. If not, see me first thing in the morning. So I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> so we go first thing in the morning. I ate a granola bar on the way there. We get to the office. He gets me checked in. This is at like eight o'clock in the morning. So I'm the very first patient and everything. We get there and he's like, is okay if I, you know, check you because you're having contractions before. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then I was already dilated to a three and I'm only okay, three. Okay, wow. So he's like, okay, okay. Take my blood pressure. My blood pressure is still hitting 140 over 90 and even higher. And I'm on the highest dosage of blood pressure medication too. So he comes back in. He's basically like, we're having the baby today. You know, this isn't like you can't go home and go pack your bags or anything like that. You just go straight to the hospital, which luckily for us, we learned from the first time 
to have a pack bag in the car. Yep. <laughs> so so your three-day hospital bag. stay worked out well in that in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you already had a bag packed in the car. I call my mom up and I'm like, hey, I'm having the baby today. And she's like, what? Are you kidding me? Because preface for this, I had my baby shower that weekend. And I was really glad I made it to my baby shower. Like I passed the blood pressure checks and everything. So my mom had left like six hours before to go back home. <laughs> You're like, turn the oh. car around, lady. And I'm like, call her and I'm like, uh, we're having the baby today. And she's like, what? Like, what's going on? I said, I don't know. I'm, you know, I guess I'm bad enough or whatever. So we get in and get me all checked in, in the hospital and everything like that. So once they put the IV in me, and everything like that, they give me magnesium sulfate, which is the treatment for preeclampsia. What it is, it's supposed to um, lower your blood pressure and it makes you kind of like lethargic. The best way to describe how magnesium feels like, it feels like the worst flu you've ever had on steroids. Mm -hmm. Like you're just so hot, you're so tired, you're so lethargic, like you're just awful. So they get me hooked up to that because I was already dilated. My doctor was fine with trying for a vaginal delivery because that's also what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So he breaks my water. They put in the fetal electrode, fetal something electrode, I'm spacing on the name. This is where they kind of screw like the thing into the baby's head. So they oh, okay. I think it's fetal scalp electrode. Yeah. That's what it is. Fetal scalp electrode. Okay, I've never heard of this. An extra little monitor on the baby yeah. to make sure the baby's doing fine. Because I didn't know this at the time, but they were really concerned over her heart rate because of the umbilical cord Which flow. Which gotcha. the worst because she had some accelerations, decelerations of her heartbeat, and that's where it got really bad. Yeah. So they did that. They got me hooked up to Pitocin and a bunch of antibiotics because I, they hadn't gotten my group B strept um, test back. So they didn't know. So they just gave me antibiotics to be safe. And we just, I just labored for a couple hours. Um, and then they put some oxygen on me because her heart rate was decelerating baby's heart rate. And then a couple hours later I was put into a C-section. <laughs> yeah. So luckily i had already had an epidural because my doctor gave me an epidural as soon as I got there in hopes that pain management would keep my blood pressure lower. Okay. Um, but my blood pressure still kept getting higher, even on magnesium sulfate. And I was just super swelling. Um, I had fluid in my lungs at that point too. And so it just got to the point where I was getting so bad and my daughter's heart rate was decelerating so bad that they gave me a C-section. So I luckily didn't have to be put under because I had the epidural already and they were able to quickly give me a spinal. So yeah, <laughs> they wheeled me into the C-section and they quickly got baby out. We heard her cry. But the scary thing about it is I kept asking the nurses, I was like, they were shaving me, prepping me for the C-section. I'm like, will she cry? Like, is she going to go to the NICU? Like, I know she's 35 weeks, but yeah, that's basically for a full term, right? Like, that's basically full term is what I kept mm -hmm. saying. But they wouldn't give me a straight answer. They just wouldn't give me a straight answer. And I realized now it's because they were concerned that she wasn't going to be alive when she got out, that she wasn't going to be breathing. So I hear her cry and it's great and everything, but then they put her directly into the NICU. So the hospital that we were at and the OR that they had me do the C-section, they had a window directly into the NICU. 
So all they had to do was just pick her up and over and gave her directly to the NICU. Okay. It tore your heart out. Like you didn't, thinking back, I mean, you probably at the same, at the same time you were like, what's going on. But um, thinking back, it tears your heart out that you weren't able to see your baby right away. Um, and as a dad, you see your baby going one way and your wife who's cut open going another way. And you have this torn decision of which way you need to go. And so like, uh, for me, I went with the baby and straight into the NICU and I was there and I held Cora's hand and um, took some pictures and I, I really wanted to take some pictures for Courtney so that she could see the pictures as soon as possible. Yeah, so she was four pounds and 17 inches. Wow. So she was a tiny little thing. Um, yeah, and that's kind of basically all I remember. I was really drugged up and I think all the trauma of it too, my memory is just mm-hmm. so like, mm-hmm. it's so spacey. Yeah, um, and I think I think it's important too when we talk about that moment like I've talked about this in so many podcasts and it looks different for every person but we all go into having our baby with this thought of that moment when you get to meet that baby and it's on your chest and I didn't I had a c-section as well um Connor and Scarlett did not have to go to the NICU but they went to my husband so they didn't come on to me for like and I I don't feel a type of way about it but it was just like not what I pictured and I think that we can like set ourselves up for failure sometimes right because you're picturing this moment and we're going to get this moment and most people don't get the moment the moment never looks like what we think it's going to look like right we don't obviously don't imagine what you went through and I I I didn't picture having a baby by a C-section. I really didn't. And my husband holding Connor first, I thought it would be me. Um, and so I, I really love to bring importance of that moment. Like let's highlight that moment because that is very traumatic for us as moms, whether even if you have, you know, a regular easy birth and you put that baby on your chest and you don't cry, you get, there's this anticipation for this moment. So, um, I, my heart like feels for you for your moment because it's, it's heartbreaking because it's just not what you pictured. It's not what the movie showed you. It's not, not what we planned. Right. And what we plan is always never what happens, but that moment is important. Yeah. And it was really hard. I didn't see her until 27 hours after she had been in the world. Um, strangers in the NICU, you know, the nurses took care of her first. They held her first. My parents saw her first before I ever did. And that, that really hurt. And my biggest like piece of trauma that I can always take it back to is, yeah, everything that happened to me was really traumatic and it was really awful. But the thing that made it worse for me is I wasn't able to see my baby, like Mm -hmm. not for one second, anyone thought to raise her above the curtain. So I could just like, just see Mm -hmm. baby like not necessarily hold her or see the face like just see the fact that there actually was a baby and that that was really traumatic for me and I go back to that all the time and that was the thing that just traumatized me the most Mm -hmm. because I didn't feel that way and I right such a disconnect of like is this really the baby like is this really the baby that was in me what just came out of me yeah yeah 
Yeah. And it's just like, you know, new babies, they... They look funky. They, they look funky. That's just what it is, right? But like, it was hard. So kind of fast forward, since I'm already talking about seeing her for the first time, it was 27 hours later. And it was after I finally got unhooked from magnesium and I could finally eat real food. Because when you're on magnesium, you're only allowed fluids. Okay. Um, at least it was at my hospital. I don't know if it's like that everywhere. And it was also just because my blood pressure was so high, they were afraid I was going to seize. So they had these thick pads on my hospital bed. So if I were to seize, I wouldn't, you know, hurt myself too bad. So I finally had real food. They, I got on the wheelchair. They wheeled me over to the NICU. And the first thing I see is this plastic box and then this baby. And I'm just, I just bawl because I felt so guilty because I'm like, I'm the one that put my child in there. And at the time I legitimately felt like this is all my fault. You know, I put her there. I made her life start out so hard. Like what kind of mom does that? Like what kind of mom does that to her kid? That first moment is so different than anything else that goes on in your life. I like as a child, you learn that when something you can see is not in your sight, it is still there it's just not in your sight but when you're a mother and you don't get to see your baby that just came out of you you have to re go through that whole experience of I didn't see it but it's there and when you finally see it it's traumatic like Mm -hmm. a realization of everything that just went on yeah. So I learned about my baby from nurses I had just met. Mm-hmm. I, I knew nothing about her. They would tell me, you know, she's so sweet. She's just, you know, so cuddly. She's doing really good with feeding. And I learned that from strangers. Mm-hmm. And that really hurt me. But they put her onto my chest. And then in that moment kind of was pretty surreal. But I was also just bawling because I had never seen a baby that small before. Mm-hmm. She was tiny. And at that time she had lost weight too. So she wasn't even four pounds. She was like three something ounces. Mm-hmm. And I, I just couldn't believe that someone so small could be alive. Like she was just tiny. And it's so kind of incredible, right? Like when you see one of my, one of my really good friends had a really small baby and I just remember like holding her and I've never held a small baby. Like my kids were, Connor was 10 pounds when he was born. Like, so he like came out like a three month old. So I remember (laughs) holding her baby and and her baby was like five pounds. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is like the tiniest, most fragile, tiny human. Like I didn't want to move. It's truly incredible when they are that tiny. Yeah. Yeah. It's really crazy because when they're born that tiny they still have to adjust to real life and eating and feedings um she was four pounds when she was first born but i think it was three days later she had dropped down to three pound eight ounces and to put that into perspective like you can just think about that oh that's eight ounces but putting it into perspective like that's an eighth of her weight that Mm -hmm. she lost in three days. Yeah. That happened to a 200 pound, you know, adult that is 25 pounds. 
-hmm. lost in three days. That's a really great way of putting it because I don't think people really, they don't put it that way. They're just like, oh, well, like it's not, it doesn't sound like it's big of a deal, but it's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your baby's fragile. Yeah. yeah, so the sucking reflex doesn't develop until about 36 weeks of pregnancy. So she okay. was 35 weeks. Um, but something that they found out after birth was that she was IUGR, which is intrauterine growth restriction. And they found out that my placenta was super tiny. So the placenta is supposed to be like the size of a dinner plate, basically. And I can't remember. What did they compare it was to? It more, more of a size of a salad plate. So it was like. It was like half the size of what it should okay. have been. And they never caught that before on ultrasounds or anything like that. She had always been on the smaller side, but they never really like thought of anything about it until right about when things started getting bad, they noticed she stopped growing. Right. They measure them in grams and like give you estimates when they're in your um, belly. but they when she comes out you know everything right. every bit of information yeah. yeah so yeah we found out that after birth which was like what <laughs> um so I had a total six-day hospital stay because my blood pressure would not settle down okay my blood pressure kept having spikes and they were just trying to get me stable enough so finally about on the sixth day I was stable enough I was able to go home, but we went home without her baby because she was still in the NICU. Okay, that was my question. Did you go home with baby yet? And that is so hard, again, because you you just, we have this expectation of you just like go in and have the baby and you go home and like nobody really talks about these things or really prepares. I mean, do we want to talk about it? No, probably not because we don't want to go in and like scaring other mothers, but like also maybe we need to like maybe we need to this needs to be part of the conversation so that we don't feel so like punched in the face by all of this right like this isn't what was supposed to happen and again people would say well no you don't want to scare them but like maybe we should start scaring people a little bit right so they're not they're not so scared leaving I don't know like um anyway so it just that part frustrates me because we need people like you to talk about these things so that other moms realize like this shit happens and it happens way more often than not. Even um, the NICU stay, right? Your baby doesn't have to have a whole pile of health issues. It could just be jaundice. Baby could just be jaundice and have to stay a couple of days later than you do. Mm-hmm. Happens all the time. Yeah. And we were the only one we knew. I thought I was the only one in the world that had preeclampsia. I never had heard of it before. No one else I ever knew had it. Like, obviously I knew I wasn't the only one because they had a name for it and like treatments for it. But I, in my world, I was the only one that ever went through this. And we were the only one in our circles that had a premature baby and a baby that was still in the NICU. So I remember when we came home, came home, Stephen helped me shower because I was, I was still so weak, you know, from a C-section. You're, it's horrible. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yep. Um, and we showered and we dressed and we're like, okay, well, let's go back to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So we went back to the hospital and we stayed there and we went to the hospital every morning by about 9 a.m. And we didn't leave until midnight up until she got graduated from the NICU. So she was in the NICU for a total of 15 days. Wow. And it's really hard because you get home and 
you finally feel like you're freed from the hospital. You're free from this, in essence, a prison that housed you for, in your case, three days and then five days. And you feel free, but then you have to go back to it. Right. And being forced, I mean, you're not being forced, but you're a mother, you're a father. You go back to your daughter. You go back to your little tiny baby and you need to be there even though it's one of the least likely places that you want to be yeah it's like having to go back to the scene of the crime type of thing like yeah you know where the bad things happen it's not somewhere where you want to be it's you just want to take that baby home and enjoy the baby like you were supposed to right yeah and there's no one you can blame you can't blame doctors you can't blame anything you can't even blame your own body because it just happened and if you start blaming something then that's when you lose sight of any hope Mm -hmm. that there is most something about the NICU I think most people don't realize is you have to give passwords to get into the NICU so you're you choose a password that you you know call on the phone right outside the NICU office. You say, I'm here for my daughter, Corabelle, in our case. Yeah, my name is Courtney Smith. I'm here for my daughter, Corabelle, and this is my password. You give them a password, and then they buzz you in and everything like that. And that's the hard part, is you have to ask permission from strangers Mm -hmm. to see your own child. And then once you get in there, if they're having a bad day or for whatever reason, you can't hold them. Okay. So you just have to look at them through the incubator. And there were several days. That's all we did is we just sat there and just watched her. Right. Because we couldn't try and feed her because for one reason or another, the number one experience that always stands out on my mind is one day I walked into the NICU and we see where she is. So where our NICU was, they weren't private rooms. They were all in one big room. You just had curtains. Okay. So the curtains were open. I walk in and I see on a chair and I see a nurse snuggling my daughter like up to her chest and just snuggling her, which I know on the clinical side, right, that that comforts the baby and, you know, everything like that. Like, I understand that. But walking in as like a mother and an emotional side, all I saw was someone else is holding my kid and I couldn't touch her at all yesterday. And that hurt. And little things like that people don't think about. She lost her umbilical cord in the NICU. And when she lost it, I wasn't there. So we came in and a nurse kind of saved it, like on a little paper towel or napkin with me to show me. And I bawled because that was something I was supposed to do, right? At home, I was supposed to help care for it. I was supposed to, you know, watch it fall off. We were putting on her clothes in the morning. Every time I walked in, she was wearing clothes that were unfamiliar to me. Because they were NICU clothes. They weren't the clothes I bought. Mm-hmm. They weren't the clothes I chose for her to wear that day. It's little things like that that people don't realize how big of an impact it makes on NICU parents because you have no control in the NICU. So the little things you can't control, like clothes, mean a lot. You're deprived of the firsts, a lot yeah. of the firsts that happen in your daughter, your baby's life. And I guess going back to the analogy of being in a prison, like you're able to get free, but your baby is still in that prison, a hospital. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but like it, 
seems like it at some points. And the only thing that is keeping them alive is monitors and all these wires and cords going to their bodies. And then the nurses and yourself giving cares to them that they need. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a very like helpless and lonely feeling. I'm sure. I'm very sure of it. Yeah, it was really lonely. It was lonely because we didn't have as much support as we wish we would have had. Um, especially now looking back and seeing it, that there were several times that family members or friends should have reached out and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones that did are the ones we still have a really good relationship today. You know, like I had a really good friend of mine who she had a baby about a year and a half before I did. So she could really kind of put it into perspective of like, if this happened to me, how would it feel? Absolutely. And she lived in the same town as I did. And we gave her her apartment, our apartment key. She got our mail. She brought us food almost every single day. Once I got discharged at the NICU, she brought us a home-cooked meal so we didn't have to eat a hospital food. And she would just bring us little things here and there. And I will, I will never forget that because it was just the thought that someone cared about me. Or I had another friend that would text me every day asking how things were. My parents would FaceTime us like multiple times a day just to see how we were doing. Yeah. You know, no one was really concerned about like, oh, I just want to see the baby. When can I come and see the baby? They were concerned of like how are you doing? Like your own child is hospitalized. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize is they kind of, I feel like they don't know what to say because the situation makes them uncomfortable. So they just Mm -hmm. don't say anything at all, but silence screams like the silence just screams. Yeah. And we don't mean to paint this black picture of this horrible experience, but we want to be honest yeah. I mean, well, that's why we're on this show. I mean, it honest, is horrible. Honest but... <laughs> as a mother, I'll, I'll be honest as a father. Yes. Oh, my husband would like you. He tells me all the time he's going to start his own podcast called Father. <laughs> father. Um, no, but that's what we need. Like, and like honestly, that's what I like to talk about. Is I know what you're saying. Like, you don't want to paint this picture of it's like this dark, awful, horrible thing, but your experience wasn't what you thought it was mm-hmm. going to be. And like, that's what I want to shed light on is like the bad things, they happen and they happen a lot. And they put us as parents in big time struggles afterwards, which kind of leads me into my question of, I'm assuming that this, this affected you postpartum. Like you obviously had a ton of stuff to work through, and I'm curious, like, Stephen, what was that like for you to watch her go through that? Um, it was very hard. I mean, I didn't know what was going on in my wife's head. I didn't know how she was mentally. I tried to comfort her, but I didn't feel like I had any say in like how I could comfort her because I'm not the mother going through it. I haven't been through giving birth or delivery. And so you just do what you can to make their life easier. And that's, I think, how 
my life was for at least the first six months after baby was Mm -hmm. I was at a point where I was making your life more comfortable and helping you to get better and that took its toll on me mm-hmm. after six months I uh, needed to, to work through my own things through mm-hmm. therapy and it, it's hard to get all those emotions and thoughts out and on you know I guess on paper but or out of the world into the world um but it's something that you have to work through to feel complete closure after you've gone Mm -hmm. through a traumatic birth of any yeah yeah and I think you guys the situation that you've been through and then I'm just speaking from my own experience I know very very recently like within the last like month or so my husband and I had a conversation about um I had struggled with postpartum depression and uh, I know you know this I talked about this on your podcast but very recently my husband actually said to me I don't remember his exact words but something basically like you know he went through a lot because of what I went through Mm -hmm. so he is still working through a lot of it but you have to be that support person for the time being so it's like you and I don't think that um we talk about that enough either like I'm getting a little sidetracked here but I I think it's important to talk about like the partners too because we as moms struggle whether it's postpartum or traumatic birth or whatever it is but that also can equally have our partners struggle um, so yeah. thank you, Stephen, for saying that, because it's like, and I don't think you even realize it once you're going through it. Right. Because it, I almost think dads or partners in general can almost lose their identity as quickly as we can, but maybe don't realize it as quickly because they're being the supportive person to us. Yeah. I know in Stephen's case, he just kind of put on the role of, I got to help my wife. I got to help my daughter. I just got to help my wife. Got to help my daughter. Like nothing else matters. Cause Stephen basically took the role on caretaker for me forever um right I couldn't shower by myself until like 10 weeks postpartum or so because I would get super like headed in the shower and so I'd you know pass out and stuff and I just had a hard time standing with the c-section because as you know like with a c-section after about 12 hours or whatever they want you to get up and walking for me I was still on magnesium I couldn't go up and walking until 27 hours later you couldn't even see a few days later and I couldn't even see a few days later because I had swelled up my eyes swelled shut um so I didn't get any of that walking so my core was just trashed (laughs) yes I couldn't use it so I had a hard time dressing myself because I still had to wear compression socks because I was still swelling um, I was on a butt ton of medications. She even had to help me make sure I took them at the right times. Cause of course they were all taken at different times and different hour increments. Like, of course, of course. Right. So yeah, luckily I'm one of the lucky ones. I don't have high blood pressure now. Um, That's I got good. off of medication at eight weeks postpartum and haven't had high blood pressure since. That's good. So I was lucky in that way. <laughs> Other things happened because of preeclampsia, but at least I don't have high blood pressure. 
-hmm. as like a father it's hard when your baby comes into the world and there's something wrong with them or your wife is in a position where she's hurting because I almost think like you literally have this extra imaginary limb that grows on your own body as a father and you can feel every single thing that's there is going wrong with them Mm -hmm. your wife and your baby and it it hurts when they feel the pain (laughs) and so you you do your best you can do to comfort them what made it hard with Stephen too is not only with my struggles and everything I had, I was trying to pump because for me, I'm like, if I could just at least give her milk, I couldn't carry her to 40 weeks, but if I could just give her milk, you know, that will solve everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and because everything my body went through, I, I couldn't produce. I would be attached to the pump for like an hour and I would get like maybe one or two milliliters. Like I just, I couldn't get anything. So eventually I had to stop. And the thing with pumping too is I had to fortify my milk. Um, which is adding a certain amount of formula because she needed a high calorie because she was so tiny and growth restricted. So eventually we just did the high calorie formula. And in her case, we had a wake to feed for several months. So every three hours on the dot, we had to wake her up and feed her to make sure she was getting enough calories in. So that kind of takes a toll too, because I know with full-term babies, at least most of what I've heard from my friends and everything, they start getting pretty long hour increments around two months or so, right? Like six mm-hmm. hours at a time or so, but we didn't have that then because we still had to wake her up to feed her to make sure she was still getting weight. Make sure she was growing and gaining enough weight to keep herself alive. Yeah. Um, so as you know, the lack of sleep and all the crazy hormones, yeah, it can send you into a deeper depression. And that's what happened to me. And a lot of it too, is I just kept blaming myself for what happened. Like, this is all my fault. This is all my fault. My anger shifted to quite a few times during the journey. I was angry at myself. It was all my fault. And then I was angry at God. Like, this is higher being it. Why did he make this happen? You know, it's all his fault. And then this is Steven's fault. He's the one that got me pregnant. <laughs> like, this is his fault. So my anger just kept going around to all these different people because I was just angry. Yeah. You needed a place for it to land. Yeah. And I was sad of what happened because I had PTSD from it. I would have all these night terrors and panic attacks and dreams because everything that happened had happened so fast and so intensely. I had no room to breathe until after it was all over. Right. The, the world around you doesn't stop when you have a baby or something go wrong in your life. And as a father, you still have to provide and your wife's stuck at home with the baby. She can't, she can barely take care of her own self after what she's gone through. And then she has to take care of a baby on top of that. And you have to go back to work and you're, (laughs) you leave them and you're something is torn out of you that stays at home with them. And then you put on this face where you're okay, you can work, you can provide, but on the inside, you're not, you're not okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's, it's very, it's like when, obviously it's very different, but it's like the same thing when you're grieving, right? And you guys, in a sense, were grieving what you thought would be. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it is, it's a crazy realization that like this big, crazy thing happens. Like, traumatic birth and then you have this baby at home and you know your wife is struggling it's very similar to 
when someone's grieving and then life just goes on and you're like wait we we have to pay bills and do things like I got shit to deal with like this is very surreal that life still goes on yeah definitely and I know it was scary for Stephen because I was having really really dark thoughts um I never like set out a plan or wanted to actually kill myself or anything like that but like I just I just didn't want to exist I just wanted to disappear like you I saw your, your life as worthless yeah I mean you didn't find as much worth in it as you had in your throughout any of your life before and for me all my self-worth was trashed at that point because during pregnancy my kind of self-worth was I'm growing this baby I'm doing the thing women should be able to do and I couldn't even do that right right yes (laughs) you hear that all the time right like this is what I was born to do women are born to you know repopulate the earth and look at me I can't even do this right and now on the other side of it it's like no you did it totally right you did everything right but when you're in it yeah it's hard it's hard yeah so as when I started getting into therapy and that really helped a lot my first therapist she kind of practiced in the way of just letting me talk kind of Mm -hmm. way she didn't really work on me anything at the time that's what I needed I just needed someone who would listen to all of it and just be like wow that sucked. (laughs) That was hard because at the time I didn't really have anyone safe to talk about it with except for Steven. But when you have a, you know, a few hours away from your newborn, the last thing you want to talk about is you want to talk about when we, when I almost died, like let's talk about that. So we never talked about it. I had anyone to talk about with. So then we moved to a different city and then all the COVID everything happened everything got shut down and everything like that and it was hard for Steven because he had just graduated from college he didn't get a job that he wanted to get you know with his degree and that's kind of when his world started crashing down is when everything realized of like what the heck just happened to me this past year (laughs) you know I almost lost my wife my baby and I can't provide the way I want them to I'm not good enough yeah it's like that and that's when with my pushing he started therapy on his own And throughout your life, you want to be in a position where you can say, I've got the power. I'm providing, I'm taking care of things, but you're cut down and literally like scraped down to the bone and you're living on, you know, just a small little breath of air to get through every single day that you have to get through. And it's hard. Yeah, I'm not going to (laughs) be... I mean, I'll, I'll say it plainly. It's hard. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you saying that because that's, that's what it is. It's really, really hard. And let's just give him a round of applause because most men don't actually admit that things are hard when they're hard. (laughs) They really don't. So thank you for saying that because my husband wouldn't tell me it was hard. My husband just told me it was hard a month ago. And that was when we were like a bottle of wine in. So that's the only reason why you told me, but you know, it's hard for, and I, again, like I think because a lot of the attention goes onto mom and baby and especially in Courtney's um, situation, she went through a lot. And I think sometimes we don't look at dad and think, oh, they've gone through a lot too, but yeah, yeah, they have, they've gone through the exact same amount but there's actually it's just more mental than anything which I think is also an extremely heavy load 
Yeah, definitely. And we, we don't give it credit. Anyone out there to that's going through something like this to feel like they have a support system. And that's why we started a knock on motherhood and the knock on parenthood podcast yeah. is because so we want mothers and fathers who go through crap to have a support system that they can rely on to learn from, to know what questions to ask their doctors and their coming appointments. And after everything goes down, where to turn to? Because we thought we were the only ones in the world. We thought we were the only ones in the world that went through this. And so once we kind of opened up the floodgate, we realized we're not alone. And that's, that's so healing to know that you're not alone. You're not the only one yeah. who went through all this and everything like that. And like, now I can kind of confidently say that, like, I'm healed. Like, I will always, you know, go back to it. And I'm sure there'll be times where, like, I might have another nightmare or something. Like, it will always be part of me. But I can look back and talk about it without breaking down crying or. I know, I'm impressed everything like that. <laughs> I actually thought if she cries, I'm in trouble. Well, yeah. <laughs> Steven's going to have to walk us through all of this. <laughs> it's only because I'm three years out almost. And I know like years don't have anything. So I know there are people who are three years out that still struggle and that that's totally okay. It was only just because I have gone through the work. I've been through therapy. We've been through therapy together. Like I've been able to heal in ways that I needed to heal that I'm able to talk about it and be okay with it. Like I feel like I've kind of gotten to a point of that crap happened and it sucked, but like it, it happened, you know, I just kind of have to move on from it. Um, but again, you know, healing's not linear. I'm sure there'll be another month from now. I might tell you something different, how I'm not healed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. Then, you know, well, it's exactly what you said. Healing is not linear. It's like you, you heal from this and then all of a sudden you, your daughter does something and she triggers some other thought in your brain. You're like, I, I need to call my therapist. Like this is all, <laughs> everything's crashing down again. And that is totally fine. You go through cycles and that's everything in life is, has its cycle to go through. Um, and as a parent who's gone through a traumatic birth experience, you think about your life and retrospective, who has gone through this before that, you know, and you've, I, there's a time when I was in like middle school that my cousin had a preemie baby and he was on uh, oxygen for his full first year of life. And as a middle school kid, like I didn't know how to relate or anything. And I, you know, don't know how to connect with my older cousin, but retrospectively after you've gone through an experience like that you you know how hard it's been mm -hmm. and you can relate yeah and I think that's what why what you guys are doing is so incredible because I love what you said there's such power in validating someone else's story and their emotions and there's there is so much to be said that even though you can read the books and hear the podcasts and listen to other people's stories when you go through it you truly and honestly feel so unbelievably alone so I love what you guys are doing because you are allowing parents to know you're not alone this shit is awful and it happens and here's some support that 
if we can help you in any way, like here's some information, here's some support, here's what happened to us. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. And that's been a lot of my healing for me too, is that I get DMS from women who are like, I just got diagnosed. You know, I just read your story. It's nice to know that like, it can get better from here. Yeah. Or, you know, I went through something just like you, like, you know, it helped me. And that's really healing for me to know that I'm helping people because when I started blogging, it was just kind of my therapist's idea of like, well, just get it out there. Just see, and then kind of, you know, taking the form of its own, but that's what most of it was, is like, I don't want someone to feel as alone as I did. Cause I thought I was the only one in the world. And then once I started doing it, I started connecting with other people and some of the people I'm closest with, I've never met in real life yes. <laughs> just over Instagram DMS, but it's because they went through preeclampsia too, or they went through yeah. help syndrome and they, they understand you know, like they understand if, you know, my friend announces that she's pregnant again and how it hurts me, right? Mm-hmm. They understand why and all of my feelings. Cause I love Steven. He's the best husband in the world, but like he's never been a woman. He's never given birth. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't understand it in the same way as someone who's actually been through it, you know? Yeah. It's almost like you uh, have this emotional balloon that's about to pop because of everything that you've gone through. But with the internet and being able to connect with people, you can get a little bit of air out here and there. Totally. Yeah. And you're doing an incredible job of it and you're healing, helping heal so many moms and then healing yourself in the middle of all of it. Like you can't, you can't get a better combination. Well, thank you. (laughs) So tell everyone where can they follow you guys, find you, where can they listen to your podcast, read the blog, all the good stuff. Yeah. So the main Instagram account we have, which is the most active is knock on motherhood. Um, you can find my blog at www.knockonmotherhood.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Then we have our podcast page, which is knock on parenthood podcast and same with that with Facebook. Um, and we'll be starting that up again soon we had to take a huge break in all the christmas season and busy season we just kind of dropped off the face of the earth (laughs) yeah we got to do it sometimes yeah (laughs) absolutely well thank you guys so much for being so vulnerable and i just appreciate you sharing your story with my audience and with myself and i am i'm very grateful to have met you guys and to have have you on my podcast because this is an incredible story Yeah, well, thank you so much. We enjoyed it. Yeah, we enjoyed being here. Thanks. You guys will be back. Stephen, you're coming back. I love a man with emotions. (laughs) Don't worry, Courtney. We love you too. (laughs) Well, guys, thank you again for tuning in to another episode. And I will talk to you next week. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Honest as a Mother podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you.